Thanks for tuning in today. Please visit NemoursWellBeyond.org to catch all our episodes and sign up for our monthly newsletter. You can also use the voicemail feature on the website to leave a message with your episode ideas or questions. You just might be featured on an upcoming episode of the show. Without further ado, let's go. Well Beyond Medicine. Welcome to Well Beyond Medicine, the Nemours Children's Health Podcast. Each week, we'll explore anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. I'm your host, Carol Vassar, and now that you're here, let's go. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine. When it comes to preterm births, the World Health Organization estimates that 15 million babies are born before the completion of 37 weeks gestation. Preterm birth complications are the leading cause of death among children under five years of age, about one million deaths in 2015. Strikingly, three-quarters of these deaths could be prevented with current, cost-effective interventions. In a wide-ranging interview recorded at the meeting of the Pediatric Academic Society's PAS in Washington, D.C. in May 2023, I spoke with Dr. Brett Manley on the research he's doing to add to those interventions. Dr. Manley is a consultant neonatologist at the Royal Women's Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and an associate professor in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Melbourne. The research he's doing right now is as the co-investigator of a study looking at whether a particular two-drug protocol can lessen the effects and even prevent bronchopulmonary dysplasia, or BPD, a common and serious complication in extremely preterm babies. Dr. Manley provides details on his research and the struggles of finding families willing to partake in research generally. But first... Let's get a clinical definition of BPD and how treating it has vexed neonatologists for decades. Here's Dr. Brett Manley. Yeah, BPD, bronchopulmonary dysplasia, and even easier if we refer to it as, as chronic lung disease of prematurity. So this is a condition that affects at least half and probably more than that of all extremely preterm babies. So these are the really little babies born more than three months early, or we would say before 28 weeks gestation. So these little babies have uh, a really difficult journey starting their life and through their stay in the neonatal intensive care unit and that generally involves quite a lot of respiratory support and oxygen therapy to help with their immature lungs. And lots of those babies need support for a long time and oxygen for a long time. And if they reach 36 weeks and are still needing significant support, we diagnose them with this condition, bronchopulmonary dysplasia. That condition in itself or that diagnosis may not be critically important so much to families but what is is we know that BPD is associated with worse long-term outcomes as well and that stands to reason the sicker babies that need more help with their breathing need more oxygen need more respiratory support do have more trouble in the long term and that that's both developmental and general health but also respiratory and breathing problems and uh, it's sort of the bane of the neonatologist's existence and for the families and babies as well that this is such a common condition that we're having a lot of trouble preventing or improving. And there are very few therapies that seem to be able to do that uh, in our armament. One therapy that's useful is corticosteroids. These are drugs that are used for many things in medicine to reduce inflammation. And similarly, they can be used in extremely preterm babies to reduce inflammation in the lungs, get them off mechanical ventilators and improve their outcomes. 
But uh, like a lot of medications and therapies used in neonatology, we've learnt the hard way that there's no easy answer. Giving systemic steroids into the bloodstream or into the stomach are associated with worse long-term outcomes themselves. And so we're really careful in how we use those and only in the sickest babies with BPD or chronic lung disease. So we're desperately looking for new ways to prevent or improve the severity of BPD. And one way that's been described is actually giving it directly into the lungs. So the idea there is that instead of giving it into the bloodstream where it can go all over the body and affect other organs, most importantly the brain, and have adverse effects, if you could give it straight into the lungs, that would mean it, it works in the organ that you're trying to target in the lungs and hopefully have less side effects. We didn't come up with this idea. There's a, a famous doctor from Taiwan called Dr. Ye, who's here at the conference today, who's previously presented a small randomised trial looking at the concept of combining steroid medication called budesonide with another commonly used drug called surfactant that we give to pretty much all of our extremely preterm babies and squirting that down into the lungs. And he's showed some preliminary findings that that's very, very uh, effective at reducing BPD. And in fact, just uh, yesterday at this very conference, uh, he presented a second trial very similar to the first showing, again, a very strong effect on BPD. So we've seen this, as have a lot of clinicians around the world, and I guess to be honest, we felt maybe that huge effect that he has seen in those two smaller trials needs to be replicated in a larger trial, in different babies, using different techniques, and that's where we've designed the PLUS trial. So this is a, a huge randomised trial of over a 1,000 extremely preterm infants that's actually just recently finished enrolling, although we have no data yet to discuss, and I'm hoping that by the end of the year we will. So 21 hospitals across four countries, Australia, New Zealand, Singapore and Canada have contributed to this. And the concept is that if we can give budesonide, a corticosteroid combined with surfactant and squirted into the lungs, that will reduce death and BPD in this really fragile population. So this could really be a huge milestone in treating preterm babies should it come to pass that the two previous trials are replicated by PLUS and what you're doing right now? Well of course we're super hopeful that's the case. I'm a little bit nervous to be honest. I think uh, it's hard not to be cynical in our in our profession where over many decades we've really struggled to reduce the incidence of BPD or make it go away but having seen that Dr. Ye's two trials and just how promising those results were we're very ho ho hopeful sorry and I think the other thing about PLUS is that because we've we've got more centres involved in, in four countries and we've also used a variety of respiratory care techniques and a variety of ways of giving the surfactant and the budesonide. I think there's going to be a lot of useful information in this trial when we've finally got the results by the end of the year. When you're enrolling, and I know you've just completed enrolling, when you're enrolling, how do you find the children and families? How do you convince them that this is something that could be helpful to children writ large? Gosh, we could talk for informed consent for clinical trials. Uh, we could talk about that forever. But I think this, it, it's, uh, there's some important things to, to talk about here. It's really difficult. That's the first thing. So these are families dealing with the imminent birth of an extremely preterm baby or even dealing with the recent birth of an extremely preterm baby. And if we use the PLUS trials as an example, we approach families both before a birth when we thought that they were going to deliver an extremely preterm baby and very soon after the birth, sometimes in the first hours, although we did have the advantage of having up to a day or so to approach families for the trial. But many other tr clinical trials going on in neonatal medicine 
looking at interventions even before birth or in the delivery room or straight after birth and therefore generally require informed consent from families that early in in the infant's um, lifetime. It's really difficult. Families are very stressed. As a result, most trials struggle to recruit. I guess a a good recruitment rate or enrolment rate in many clinical trials would be around 50%. The problem with that, of course, is that that may or may not lead to a a generalisable sample. We might be Given the fact that we only recruit about half of eligible infants or families to some of our trials, that means half of eligible infants and families were not in the trial and may have been very different or may have had other reasons for not being in the trial that mean that when we try and uh, translate our findings into the real world, we find that it could even be harmful or not beneficial to everyone that we thought. So one uh, one of the hot topics in our field is looking at how we might obtain informed consent with different methods. We've been using and discussing the use of of techniques like deferred or retrospective consent. This is where families are approached after their baby is born and even after the intervention is given. So this is quite controversial in the sense that families are not asked before the uh, study has occurred or the intervention has occurred. They're approached afterwards and then have the right to either remain in the trial or not. And even some trials using something called a waiver of consent where consent is never asked of families. That sounds really controversial and strange, but there are laws in most countries about how this can be safely done, and of course laws around what sorts of studies and interventions can be done with the concept of protecting the patient and the family and uh, not doing anything that would be of high risk to the patient or family. But back to your original point, uh, we prospectively consented all the families in the PLUS trial, so that's 1,060 families that were, well, not quite so many because there were some twins in the trial, but 1,000-odd families that were consented in the hours before and after the birth of their extremely preterm baby. And you can imagine how stressful that is, and it never ceases to amaze me or any other perinatal researcher how willing families are to contribute to research in that incredibly stressful situation. You were talking about informed consent. I'm curious as to informed consent across countries. PLUS has four countries involved. Are the informed consent requirements a bit different? Across countries they are. Generally, nationally, they're similar or the same. And I'm not ex- ex- exactly familiar with the differences between states, for example, in the US. But between Europe, the US, the UK and Australia and New Zealand, for example, there are a lot of similarities, but also some differences. And I think in terms of willingness to approach those sorts of alternative consent methods there is a difference i think in the u.s people have been very concerned about the potential risk or the controversy generated from using waivers of consent or deferred consent whereas in australia and new zealand there's um i guess it's been used a little bit more but still not without controversy and in fact i'm talking about this tomorrow at the conference just how do we get this mixture right because you might say, how dare anyone experiment on, on my baby? And of course, that, that, that's the natural reaction to a study that doesn't ask you for informed consent. But on the other hand, parents tell us, this is an incredibly stressful time. Can you just get on with it and do a study that is safe and is going to contribute to the health of my baby and other babies and to society and ask me about it afterwards when I'm feeling a bit better about the whole situation? And in certain circumstances, there are trials that have no added risk to the patient or the family, but still great health benefits, where guidelines in various countries would say that that would be a reasonable approach to use a waiver of consent. Certainly benefits to the child at hand and benefits to children uh, moving forward, given that this is research that can be applied 
for children who are yet to be even conceived. Yeah, that's right. And look, it's such a controversial area. But the other thing to think about, I guess, is that just like other forms of medicine where there are emergencies happening, you can think of that the emergency department or you could think of uh, paramedics or you could think of uh, receiving CPR and, uh, you know, someone has a heart attack and drops to the floor. The only way to do research in those situations is, is to do it. And uh, there is often not the opportunity to gain informed consent in those situations. And neonatology is a bit like that. We're dealing with an incredibly acute field. We're having babies born at 23 and 22 weeks gestation who uh, in some places have very high mortality rates. And I think that we, of course, have to get the balance right and be guided by parents and ethics experts. But I think it's also not acceptable to not do research in these babies where we need to improve mortality and morbidity. And the only way to do that is to find out how. Let me ask you this from the clinical side. Is there a patient or patient family that has stuck with you through your career who maybe inspires you to keep going? Because there must be really tough days. There are some really tough days, but like you say, there are the families and the babies that stay with you on both sides of the coin. So there are those babies that stay with you sometimes in quite a pathological way where you wonder whether you could have done better or it's been a difficult interaction with the family or things have happened that shouldn't happen or or rarely happen that have just been so devastating. And on the other side of the coin, there are those families that, you know, are forever grateful to the hospital and for the medical care that they've received. And in some cases those babies are the ones where you thought things were going to be bad and they turned out good it's such a fascinating specialty we're in for that very reason the ethical issues and consent is just one the life or death type scenarios being proven wrong and being proven right sometimes is just as hard and uh, the journey that you go through with families which you know is is one of the great parts of the job but there's probably not many other jobs like that where you're there from the start and you go through this journey that sometimes months or years of the ups and downs of the intensive care unit have you seen some of these children grow up and grow up healthy and go on perhaps maybe you're too early in your career to see your the children you treated have children of their own but probably just a little bit too early for that no we, we we do see these children do well and i think that's a really important message you know maybe it i painted a, a picture of uh, of doom and gloom without meaning to but no look on average most babies do well even the tiniest babies and I, I think we've perhaps been a little bit too pessimistic and as more and more data comes out showing that some of these babies most of these babies grow up yes they might have some health difficulties but if their families and they as individuals are happy and describe a good quality of life whether or not they might have something that you or I or society would describe as a disability then that's very satisfying and that's exactly what we hear these these children as they grow up tell us that I have a good quality of life thank you very much and the families tell us that too and in general they're just uh, ecstatic that everything happened the way it did that must be rewarding very rewarding um, and you know to, to play devil's advocate it does go the other way as well but even families who have children or children themselves who have what we would describe as disabilities they get on with it and I think you know we as clinicians are starting to recognize that we can get these babies through and that they can grow up and leave long and happy lives of course there has to be limits on on neonatal practice I, I briefly mentioned earlier we're looking after babies born as early as two, 22 weeks gestation now which is, you know, uh, physiologically about as early as you can be born and still 
still get oxygen into your lungs and into your bloodstream. But, you know, this is happening around the world and there's really a, a new wave coming through now of tinier and tiny babies that we're, we're learning about. How did you end up in medicine? How did you end up in neonatology? There's got to be a story there. Yeah, I'm the first doctor in my family, so it's not something that I've been uh, born into. I was always attracted to the idea of medicine. I found it to be probably an exciting job to do and an interesting job to do. And then as I went through my training, I was very much drawn to paediatrics. I just loved looking after families and the kids and seeing them get well. But as years went by, I found myself really uh, umming and ahhing between surgery or procedural type specialties and and paediatrics. And uh, then I did neonatology and I found that I can combine the two in a specialty that has a lot of excitement, is never boring, there's uh, resuscitations going on every day, Uh, you still get the interactions with families that I was looking for. And so that's how I ended up settling down in the NICU. You don't have a family background in in medicine. What attracted you to science? What attracted you to medicine? Was it the people? Was it the science? Was it the combination thereof? Yeah, definitely. I'm definitely a people person. Love chatting to, uh, love communicating, love chatting, fairly extroverted. Also a scientific thinker more than a sort of humanities type person. So I enjoyed that side of it. I think I'm someone who needs constant interest and excitement in my life and I don't think I would ever be the person that was uh, behind a desk all day. Not that there's anything wrong with that, but just not for me. So that's how I was drawn to, to medicine in the first place. And then, of course, there's no one doctor who's the same as another. There's so many different things you can end up doing in medicine, but I've really found a combination of acute critical care medicine with neonatology combined with a role that I have in research, which allows me to... Uh, really sort of try and innovate and critically think as well. You are very active on Twitter and in fact brought together a group under the hashtag NeoTwitter that is um, active throughout the world in terms of posting their research, supporting one another in the work of neonatology. Talk about that group, your get together recently, how it happened that you got together here. Yeah, I never thought I was going to be a Twitter guy, just like I'm sure a lot of people out there who aren't on Twitter or other social media apps, they think that that as well. They think, why would I go on there and I don't want to hear about my colleagues' cats or what they did on the weekend. Joining Twitter and becoming active in Twitter, and it fluctuates how active I am, but doing that is one of the best things I've done in my research career. And I guess there are two things I think about mainly when I say that. Number one, definitely is the networking that that opens up and the ability to meet new people and make new friends and make new collaborations and us getting together as a group using a hashtag uh, yesterday was just one such great example we had people from all over the world coming together putting faces to names or putting faces to handles as the case may be and uh, and and meeting each other in real life and it was just absolutely a wonderful event I think the other thing is that perhaps clinicians and researchers don't understand just how powerful social media is in uh, keeping your own uh, education up to date and staying up to date with the literature. Of all the ways I've ever tried to stay up to date with research in my field, Twitter is by far and away the most powerful. Today's an example. You've got people who are at the conference here in Washington are, are tweeting about the results of new studies when they're allowed to. They're being respectful of authors' wishes, of course. But when they're allowed to, they're tweeting about the methods and results of studies and they're disseminating those results very quickly and getting immediate feedback. And that, that's just amazing. I'm not sure there's any other way that you can do that. Another example was 
a few weeks back when we, we had a clinical question looking at designing a new clinical trial and put out a quick survey on Twitter and had 400 results from around the world uh, in a matter of days. And when you actually try and do a survey in another technique or an, using online tools, it's rare to get such a good response in, in our field. So it's very powerful, but it's also been personally very, very satisfying. Anything else you'd like to share from the research perspective, from the clinical perspective, from your experience here at PAS? I just want to circle around back to some of the issues with with consent, but I think really bigger than consent is about educating the public about just how important clinical research is. I think there's the feeling out there in our specialty of perinatal neonatal medicine that you know you need to be super careful about doing any research in little babies and I understand that because that's a very emotive sort of thought but it's just absolutely critical to improve outcomes for our patients. Other fields have, have managed to integrate clinical research into their day-to-day running. Oncology is a really good example you know you're diagnosed with cancer and you need treatment almost without fault you'll be randomized in a clinical trial because they're constantly trying to improve their methods of treating what are what is a condition with high mortality and morbidity and I think of our field a little bit like that and uh, we need to think of ways that we can educate the public to the point where there'd almost be an expectation that if you are having a high-risk pregnancy or having a tiny sick baby that, that we would be trying to find ways to improve care, not only of your baby, but, but of all the babies that come after. So I think, I think I'd leave you with that message. Dr. Brett Manley, thank you so very much for being with us today. Thanks, Carol. Well beyond medicine. I'm Carol Vassar. Thanks for listening to our conversation on the cutting-edge research being done by our guest, Dr. Brett Manley, on new clinical interventions for premature babies. I have a nephew who has benefited from the interventions developed as a result of research done by people like Dr. Brett Manley. Born at just two and a half pounds, young Max is now a happy, healthy, soon-to-be seven-year-old. Is there a child in your life who has benefited similarly? Continue the conversation with us by leaving your voicemail at nemourswellbeyond.org. That's nemourswellbeyond.org. Maybe you'll hear your voice on an upcoming episode of the Well Beyond Medicine podcast. While you're there, check out our other episodes, subscribe to the podcast, and leave a review. Thanks to Che Parker, Cheryl Munn, and Susan Masucci for this week's production assistance. Join us next week as we talk with Dr. Bina Kamath-Rain, Vice President of Global Health for the American Academy of Pediatrics, about all things children's health on a global scale. Until then, remember, we can change children's health for good, well beyond medicine. Let's go, oh, oh, well beyond medicine.